Howdy, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Fire and Barley, a podcast about culinary journeys. Today, we're talking to one of the most knowledgeable people in the business, Eamon Rocky, the creator and founder of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur. Eamon has a potpourri of culinary experience. He's worked in the kitchens and behind the bars of some of the best restaurants in the world, like 11 Madison Park and Bettany. He's designed and opened as general manager two restaurants, two restaurants that each earned two Michelin stars apiece. Each one got two Michelin stars, Asuka and Atera. It's crazy. Today, in addition to being the driving force behind Rocky's Liqueur, he anchors the Institute of Culinary Education's new beverage study program in New York City. In this episode, we talked about the creation of Rockies and how years of culinary and beverage experience allowed Eamon to create a drink that works with any spirit. When I say that he knows his stuff when it comes to beverages, that is a gross understatement. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Eamon, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing well, Russ. It's great to be here. Thank you. From the beginning, I was you know, very fascinated by your story of, of how you came to, to develop uh, Rockies. And I think we want to start with just learning a little bit about you. Where did your, uh, when did you first start your journey in, in spirit making and you know, kind of how, how did you come to this place at the first point of origin? Sure. Well, you know, if I started talking about uh, spirits first, I think it would be a little out of context. My folks were chefs and that's how they met. They, they started working together in uh, Washington, D.C., where my mother was a pastry chef and my father was a savory chef. I was, I was conceived shortly thereafter, is my understanding. And, um, and my folks moved to Denver, where I was born and uh, where a lot of my, my family is. And, you know, as I grew up, I, I kind of grew up with my folks cooking, uh, being in kitchens. When I was 14, I started working at a sushi bar in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where my family had moved. And it was the first sushi bar in the town. You don't think about Mississippi and Japanese food and and uh, sushi bars, especially not, you know, in the in the 90s. But I'll tell you, um, it was it's it's the town. The town is home to the University of Southern Mississippi. So there are people from all over the world that fill the town. Uh, in fact, it's called the hub city because in in the south for a few hundred miles in every direction, they all sort of converge on Hattiesburg. So with this very cosmopolitan, uh, relatively speaking for the South town, I was able to benefit from this brand new Japanese restaurant moving in and, and working as an apprentice to the sushi chef as a teenager, you know, and I, I kept cooking throughout my my uh, early and mid teens. I eventually went to the CIA in Hyde Park, the Culinary Institute of America, got a bachelor's there. And, you know, during that time period, I, I started to learn about wine and spirits in a big way. And I figured if I if I took a couple of years to to learn about them and learn about service and hospitality, it would, it would really do me well in my uh, ultimate, you know, career trajectory as a chef. But when I, when I graduated, I moved to the city, I moved to New York City, got a job at 11 Madison Park, uh, figured if I was going to learn about service and hospitality, it should be from Danny Meyer, you know, this guy who I'd read his book and, you know, come to admire and respect. At the time, uh, I genuinely intended uh, to, to do it only for a short time and then and get back to cooking. But the, the general manager of the restaurant at the time, Will, um, asked me if I would learn to bartend and, and help out behind the bar. So he knew I had an interest in all things beverage and food and felt like I might have a decent skill set for it. And turns out I, I really fell in love with with what bartending is. And in, in my mind at that time, it was sort of the perfect combination of food and cooking and and service and beverage, which uh, I had not even thought about or considered before. So that was really the the genesis of of my my 
uh, immersion into into spirits and cocktails and beverage in general at 11 Madison Park, kind of by accident, to be honest with you. So after three years at 11 Madison, I uh, had the opportunity to open a small cocktail lounge, and we eventually sort of evolved that concept into what is now a Terra up in Manhattan. And I'd sort of brought my sensibilities in food and cuisine and where I thought it would be fun to apply those to beverage to to a head there. And I started making everything in-house. And some things, you know, went well and some things not so well, but it was it was sort of testing my comfort comfort zone in the bar and and producing things from scratch. So when a few years later, a few restaurants later, I opened Asuka in Williamsburg, which is doing well, and eventually Bethany on 57th Street. It was it was at that last place that, that I made something that eventually sort of morphed into and evolved into what is now Rocky's Liqueur. And which is to say that we made a, a seasonal beverage uh, that had a sort of rotating a roster of, of ingredients, whether they be fruits or teas or citrus or herbs, spices, et cetera, you know, whatever made sense for what was in season and what, what was delicious to our guests. And so with this, with this preparation, we were able to customize it to our guests' particular and specific uh, tastes by offering them, you know, their choice of tequila or vodka or gin or champagne or even beer sometimes. And, and the list goes on and on infinitely. Uh, so using this, this base cocktail that we made, we could make virtually anybody a drink with, with a spirit that they like with the spirit they enjoy, even making non-alcoholic versions of it were, were, uh, was super fun and happened relatively frequently. So uh, I thought to myself, if I took this concept of, of having a, a delicious, natural, low alcohol, semi-sweet, not super sweet, but a little off dry, if you will, fresh, uh, bright mixture. And if we use that as a base to make cocktails and to be, to be used as a modifier in cocktails and cocktail bars, um, then it should do quite well. And that's exactly what Rocky's Botanical Liqueur is. I think it's also worth saying, you know, that a liqueur in and of itself, you know, kind of can be uh, many different things. It can have an aperitif liqueur like Aperol or Campari, herbal liqueur uh, like Strega. It could have a bitter, sort of more intense, darker liqueur, something like Chinar, which kind of uh, almost is an Amaro at the same time as being a liqueur. So ultimately what, what fundamentally combines or what fundamentally binds these things together is a flavorful, usually fruit, but it could be spice, could be even a vegetable flavor, right? Uh, that is fortified with alcohol and sweet. And whether you're using honey or maple syrup or sugar or you you name it, the list goes on. Or agave nectar, right? You have some sort of sweetness, something very flavorful or a combination of things that are very flavorful. I think about like St. Elizabeth Allspice Dram is one of my favorite liqueurs, um, also called pimento dram, that, uh, that's spiced and, and really rich. Mm. Um, and it can be based on virtually anything alcohol, right? So you can make a liqueur like yeah. Swedish punch that's based on Batavia Iraq, or you can make a, a liqueur that's based on a neutral grain spirit like Rockies is because the alcohol is not supposed to be the forefront flavor. It should be the fruit and the citrus and the tea. And, you know, Rockies eventually sort of after nine months of making batch after batch after batch in my kitchen, uh, legitimately it was that long. It was crazy. Eventually landed on green apple, pineapple, green and black tea and citrus, uh, mostly lemon, orange and lime as well, and only 12% alcohol. So, and it's important that that alcohol is a neutral grain spirit. And, and I say that because I really tried hard to make, make Rockies with a rum base or a brandy base or even a tequila base, right? Something that actually brings flavor to the table. Sure. While often those were arguably as if not even a little bit more delicious than the neutral grain version, 
they lose their uh, their versatility. You know, if I make yeah. a if I make a rum based liqueur, then it's obviously going to be delicious with rum, but it might lose some of its efficacy with champagne. Sure. You know, and and for me, it was really 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 important that the small amount of alcohol that is in Rockies, it's only twelve percent, a lot like Aperol. It's it's able to to play and and mingle with virtually any other spirit, if not any other spirits. I'm interested that in that concept of customizability. Is that something that you were hearing? from diners that they wanted when they come in and eat? Or is that something you're hearing from bartenders? Like, where does that just need to be customized come from right now? Well, I think that specialization is very important when you're when you're doing something um, that needs to express the purity or voice of a single ingredient or idea. And what I mean by that is an example, bergamot. Bergamot is an ingredient that I'm absolutely enamored with. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite citrus fruit. Um, it's only in season for a very short amount of time. They're very expensive. And when they're good, they're truly spectacular. And when, when bergamot makes its way into something, whether it's food or beverage or, or perfume, fragrance, etc., um, you know, I, I really, really like to see it showcased. And whenever it's, it's just a supporting cast member, I think why, why use bergamot, right? Because it's so rare and so special, so seasonal, so expensive, um, and intoxicating, you know, in, in a sort of an emotional way, at least for me, I think it's really, really special. So if I'm, if I'm making like a bergamot oleosaccharum, for instance, uh, one of my favorite techniques, one of my favorite culinary and beverage techniques, um, that I want it to, to express the most concentrated essence of bergamot possible. Um, sure. But what's that technique again? I'm sorry for the Luddites out there. Oh yeah. Not, not myself, other people. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, myself, definitely. Uh, <laughs> The oleosaccharum uh, is a very old technique that is usually historically applied to, to punches. So what you do is you take, in this case, let's say bergamot just for fun, right? Let's chase down that example, but it could be any citrus fruit. Um, and you peel it. Uh, you actually are benefited by, um, by a fair amount of the pith. You don't want to have it be all pith, obviously, but sure. you know, keeping a, a fair amount of the white pith on the peel actually benefits the oleo because uh, you need moisture. And that's where a lot of the moisture in the peels are found, is found. Um, so uh, you, take the, you take the citrus peel. And uh, what I like to do, my technique, uh, you weigh whatever your yield is from your case or whatever of bergamot, right? And then, uh, again, my technique uh, is to weigh an equal amount of, of white sugar, dry white sugar. And I like using white sugar because, again, it is pure sucrose. Uh, and it does not uh, cloud or obscure any of the flavor of the, of the fruit, of the citrus fruit. You know, if you were to use Demerara thinking to yourself, I want to have a more flavorful, uh, uh, complex um, oleosaccharum, sure, that's fine, um, but there's a lot of cane. There's a lot of cane that comes with that. And mm -hmm. when I'm making oleosaccharum, I want it to just be about the fruit, the citrus fruit. You don't add any water. There's no dilution that occurs if it's done properly. Um, and, and, uh, by sealing those two ingredients in equal proportions by weight, fresh citrus peel and sucrose in a, in a Ziploc bag or a cryovac bag, if you got them, uh, and, and you let it, let it rest in, in a cool, um, not cold. It's important that it's not fridge temp. You want to keep it in a cool, sure. like pantry, uh, out of the, out of direct sunlight for about four to seven days, depending on how dry the citrus fruit is. Uh, and I want to put an asterisk next to something I said a minute ago, 
you know, if, if you're dealing with really, really dry peels and sometimes like limes as an example can be really dry, um, you might have to add like a couple tablespoons of water just to get the process going. Okay. You know, some people make, make oleo with like a cup of water and it's essentially just a syrup infusion at that point, which is not what oleosaccharum is. Hmm. Oleosaccharum in its best and purest form should be the moisture and oils of a citrus fruit that are extracted uh, through contact with dry sugar. And what ends up happening at the end of this process, and I actually did a really, really fun um, uh, photo shoot demonstrating this process and also a, a fun video that utilizes it as well, if, if you'd like, uh, that's on yeah. YouTube. Um, but uh, at the end of this process, you end up with two things and, and they're both spectacular. You end up with truly candied citrus peels, right, that are translucent and delicious. You can chop them up and make candies out of them or bake them into bread, like panettone style, you know. And sure. then you have this nectar, this perfectly liquid, fully dissolved um, uh, liquid. Um, that is the oleosaccharum. There should be no no uh, no sugar crystals left. It's completely they're completely dissolved, and only with the moisture and the oil that are naturally hmm. present in the peels. So typically, what you'd see in old cocktail books is you get a bunch of peels of whatever citrus fruit you're using, you'd throw them into a bottom of a punch bowl, you'd dump some sugar on top of them, you'd mash it around a little bit, you'd let it sit for a couple hours, then you'd come back. And usually there was there was this sort of um, uh, degradation of the peels happening and s starting to dissolve. And then, you know, you dump on some lemon juice, usually from the lemons you just peeled to make the oleo, and you'd add some, you know, wine or water or tea or whatever. And then eventually you dump on top you know, brandy and rum or whiskey sure. and throw in some ice, throw in some herbs, hit it with some, hit it with some champagne. And you have a really kick-ass, really boozy punch, which started with this uh, oleosaccharum at the base of the bowl, uh, literally at the base of the bowl. You know, the cool thing about oleo too, um, is that, well, there's a lot of cool things about oleosaccharum, not the least of which is that once it's made, if you store it in an airtight container and you, whether it's a Ziploc bag or, or a a pint container uh, that you push all the air out of, so there's no there's no risk of mold or fermentation because there's a lot of yummy things in there, right? Uh, you can actually age them for years. Uh, there's so much sugar um, and there's so much oil and so little moisture, comparatively speaking, that you can actually let them rest for two or three or four or five years at a time and they evolve, right? And so I bring up bergamot as, as this fruit I'm really really into. You know, every year at at Betany at my last restaurant, we would make a a bergamot oleo, and we'd have a library of this one from four years ago, this one from three years ago, this one from two years ago, this one that is wow. a year old, and then today's, right? And so you're able to compare them, and it is truly miraculous how delicious these things are and how how fun they are to age. And you can do this with any citrus fruit, you know? Um, and, and what's cool, too, is that they they keep the color relatively well, you know? Um, so if you do a lime oleosaccharum, it's green. If you do a yellow, uh, sorry, a, a lime oleosaccharum or maybe Meyer lemon whenever they're in season oleo, they're bright, bright yellow. Uh, so they're, they're underexploited. And, you know, I think sustainability is important um, when when considering how, how to organize a beverage program or, or a, a culinary program. Uh, you know, I try to I try to keep it in mind at home as well. So, uh, you know, I, I look at I look at most of our bars and restaurants that juice, you know, apples and juice oranges and grapefruits and, you know, you name it. And there's so much waste associated with, with these, yeah. these fruits and oleosaccharum is, is a way to take the peel that usually ends up in the garbage and to do something really, really special with it. Quarter ounce of lime oleosaccharum in a daiquiri 
it's just like mind-blowingly good and incredibly different. And you don't even know why. You're, you're, you take a sip of the drink and if it's made, of course, with, you know, fresh juice and good rum, um, you know, uh, that, that little edge, that little bitter sweet edge that you get from the oleo uh, just takes the drink to another level. So I, I think that there are so many reasons, both practical and sort of respect, respectful to our environment. Uh, there are so many reasons to to pursue oleosaccharum. And if I'm, and this is all to say, you know, if I am uh, making an oleosaccharum, I want it to taste like that fruit in its most pure form. But if I'm making a, a liqueur, want it to, to be at home with gin, I want it to be at home with whiskey, I want it to be at home with Prosecco or sparkling wine. I, I love Rockies with Aquavit, you know, and, and uh, I, I, try to, I try to make sure, I tried, and I, I think it worked out pretty well to make sure that it didn't matter what spirit you wanted to drink, there was a way to do it with, with Rockies. Um, and that's sure. sort of the difference between specialization and versatility. How many oleosaccharums do you have going right now <laughs> in your in your house? If we did an inventory, to be honest with you, um, I, I have I have none going right now. I, okay. honestly, the last the last couple of years have been crazy for a variety of reasons, and and I haven't given love to to those little pet projects as as I wish I could. And I'll be honest, since launching the brand, you know, I don't get to just make drinks for the fun of making drinks mm-hmm. all that much anymore. Sometimes, sometimes. But I'll tell you, uh, there is a, a woman named Selma uh, who is absolutely wonderful. She she is the um, head bartender, I think is is a fair title, although she might have a different one that I probably just messed up. But Selma works with Evil Twin Brewing, and uh, she's spectacular in every way. She gave me uh, some some candied citrus uh, that is in the fridge that is, I don't know, it's not exactly the same as oleo, but because she used the whole, she, she did the whole fruit, right? Mm-hmm. It pre- preserved fruits of all kinds, including bergamot, because she knew I liked it, I think, or at least that's why she gave it to me. Um, and I, I munch on those every once in a while, and they're spectacular. And anybody who's who's cruising around deep Brooklyn, deep Queens, if you don't if you don't stop by to have some of her cocktails at Evil Twin Brewing, and the beers, of course, Yepes beers, yeah. are outrageous, um, you know, you're missing out. So shout shout out to her for for the, the delicious citrus that maybe checks the box that you just asked about in my fridge. That's good. Yeah, we'll count it. We'll count it. So I'm interested in this this nine months of hmm. development that you went through. That's I think that's something that a lot of people that are going to be listening can identify with. They all have things that they've attempted to master, have mastered, have taken months. So you've got the you've decided I, I want to kind of make my own my own liqueur. I'm moving into this. What where'd you go from there? Where'd you start? And what was that nine months like? Oh gosh. Well, that's a great question. Um, and it, it should be said that that nine month period, and, and that was the longest time I spent on any one part of the process of launching the spirit. That's for sure. But that was happening in tandem with so many other aspects of, of mm-hmm. launching the brand, you know? So Rocky's, uh, again, was, was inspired by the spirit that I made at Bettany. Um, and it should be said that that uh, that inspiration for that spirit uh, was clarified English style milk punch that's been made for 400 years. Spectacular stuff. And in Rockies is it's not a uh, clarified English style milk punch that you'd put on your menu, but rather one uh, or it is a liqueur that was inspired by uh, that that very old, very cool uh, technique and recipe, a series of recipes. Um, and so with that, you know, I, I've been making this cocktail uh, and using this technique for a lot of different things for years. Uh, and I, I was so confident in it and about it, right? I put one on the menu at 11 Madison Park, put one on the menu at uh, Asuka and Atera, and certainly Betany, where it was like part of our 
religion, essentially. And, and so when I started working on Rockies, I figured, you know, I'll whip this up. It'll be, you know, fairly straightforward to come up with a recipe. Wrong. I was wrong about that, you know. And, and I'll tell you, because, because I think that, you know, perhaps you as, as a chef and your audience likely as uh, people who are fans of culinary technique and culinary and beverage innovation, you know, I, I really ultimately said to myself, what are the flavors that are ubiquitous in the, in the foods and drinks uh, that, that make other things taste good? And what I mean by that is, if you go to the grocery store and you pick up a bottle of cranberry juice, ocean spray cranberry juice, right? You know, Stevie Nicks optional. Um, and <laughs> you look at the back of the bottle, what are the other ingredients in that bottle, right? Apple juice is always in there. Grape juice is always in there, right? And so I'm like, okay, cool. That makes sense. And, and then, you know, you start looking at, at uh, food and drink preparations and how many of them include things like pineapple, right? How many of them include things like, you know, lemon, especially, but certainly lime or orange yes. also, you know, I'm, I'm like scratching my head and I'm making all these, all these beverages, you know, these versions of, of what ultimately became Rockies and switching flavors in and out and thinking maybe should, there should be some strawberry. People like strawberries, maybe then it'll be pink and people like things that are pink, right? You know, so I'm, I'm sort of like, just throwing darts and, and seeing what sticks uh, and making lots of tasty beverages. But ultimately, you know, I said to myself, I have to, I have to step four or five feet away from this, this picture, this picture, this very specific goal and say to myself, what makes sense intuitively? And, and I, I figured, look, if Apple makes other things taste like themselves at a more amplified level, that should be the cornerstone of this. And if pineapple does that too in both food and beverage, and if citrus brings uh, other other foods and drinks to life, you know, you add a little bit of citrus, it doesn't mean that it tastes like lemon per se, but it means that you amplify the other yeah. flavors. You use it like a seasoning, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then that should be uh, the cornerstone for acidity in this beverage. And and then I thought to myself, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm a tea drinker first and foremost. I, I drink I drink coffee on occasion, um, but but really tea is my, my daily, my daily warm beverage, right? Sure. And if you look back on old cocktail books, nearly every punch, you know, old, old school punches, nearly every punch has tea, whether it's black tea, oolong tea, green tea, uh, examples of sort of, you know, tannin, uh, com- complexity imbuing uh, ingredients are pervasive, in old punches. And, and that, that made me think, and I, I feel like that they're there for a variety of reasons. I think they're there to, to sort of uh, give muscle to the beverage, right? That the, the tannin, the complexity, the minerality, et cetera, you know, herbaceousness of, of green tea and, and the sort of like richness of, of black tea, they're there for those reasons. And also they're there to sort of lengthen uh, the beverage so that you're able to, to, to taste the other things and make it a more enjoyable experience, right? Because if it's if it's all fruit, then it's too sweet. If it's all acid, it's too sour. If it's all yeah. ooze, then it's too strong, right? And so the tea kind of kind of is is the the glue that holds it all together and, and gives it gives it life. So again, I, I took a few steps back from the process after months of of feeling really frustrated and and like I was was sort of beating my head against the wall when I thought it'd be relatively straightforward. And yeah. um and uh, I was like intuitively let's just paint this picture picture using uh the ingredients that uh seem to have a valid reason to include so it became the green apple and the pineapple green and black tea with citrus mostly lemon concoction 
right? And it immediately made sense, immediately came into focus. And then at that point, it was about just fine tuning and how much acid, how much sweetness, how much tea, how much this, how much that. Once that sort of like objective, what am I trying to accomplish? How am I going to get there? What makes sense? Um, and, and am I doing something uh, at random or am I doing something that, that is, is methodical? You know? And once it became method, it, it worked very quickly. And it's interesting to me that it, you arrived at one recipe, right? Yeah. That you didn't go and say, we're going to make, you know, a pineapple recipe, a green tea recipe. Nope. We're going to go for the, the one grail is what went into that decision. Absolutely. You know, making an apple liqueur never, it was never part of my thought process. And it's not to say that there aren't really awesome apple liqueurs out there. That's in no way a criticism at all. But if you're making a cocktail with an apple liqueur, then you have to assemble a variety of things to make that liqueur either taste good or make it do a job in the cocktail that, that accomplishes your goal, right? But if you have a liqueur that brings um, a sort of foundation that anything else can build off of, then you have a truly versatile spirit, right? So if I hand somebody a bottle of Rockies that I spent the, the better part of a year, you know, fine tuning and developing the flavor profile for, and if I say, try adding gin, okay, cool. Now try adding rum. Now try adding, now try adding champagne. Now try adding bourbon. Try it in a hot cocktail of a hot toddy, which is outrageously good. You know, try <laughs> it in a, in, a, in a tiki cocktail in a swizzle. Try it in a highball, like a gin tonic or a Tom Collins. And if each one of those, the Rockies does a job, then there's success. But if I handed somebody bottles of, you know, uh, limoncello or, and or apfelkorn or, you know, some sort of tea spirit, which I'm sure there are one or two out there. Um, if I handed them the palette of all these things separately and now, and I said, now make a gin cocktail and use these spirits too, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And of course, there's a good reason to keep apple corn on your bar because it's delicious. And sometimes you just need a little bit of apple, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, that wasn't the, that wasn't the intended purpose of, of what Rockies is. So how are you finding bartenders are using Rockies right now? Is there a certain types of drinks? Are they all over? Are they playful with it? What have, what's been the reception so far? You know, I'll tell you, uh, it's it's the it's the full spectrum of of cocktails. You know, my buddy Jello uses it in in delicious tiki cocktails. There's also a dude in the Hudson Valley who has a bar called um, Fuchsia Bar Anton, uh, making phenomenal tiki cocktails. Those two dudes are amazing. Selma, who I just referenced a minute ago, she's using Rockies in all like all pretty much of her frozen drinks because it's just again a great mm. a great foundation to build other things on top of you taste the drink you don't you don't say wow this tastes like rocky's liqueur no you're like wow this tastes like gin or this tastes like tequila or this tastes like pisco whatever it is right and and that's been super super cool because i'll tell you you know the last year and a half frozen drinks have have really finally um come into their own in a in a proper uh, quality cocktail world. You you take you take uh, uh, these these frozen drinks um, that are being made in uh, that are being made in so many incredible bars, and and you extract the word frozen from the name, and they're just a friggin' great cocktail with yeah. the best of the best spirits, fresh juices, you know whatever it may be, uh, and modifiers that 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 you know are behind any great cocktail bar. So that's been super duper cool. You know, there are people using Rockies in, in sort of spring and summer style Manhattans uh, or Negronis. Wonderful. You know, the, the list goes on and on and on, uh, whether it's a shaken drink with a, a bit more fresh citrus or stirred in a martini. You know, one of my favorites, I always reference it uh, to give a shout out to Patrick um, of the Modern um, USHG Danny Meyer restaurant. He, his, his Modern Martini was, was essentially kind of a Vesper style cocktail using Rockies in lieu of some of the vermouth. 
and sure. it's so darn good. It's, it's it's been it's been so much fun watching watching people take it places that I would not have thought of, and and I I, I look forward to seeing that continue. You know, sangrias. Oh my God, I just helped a buddy <laughs> helped a, helped a buddy put um put Rockies into a sangria on his draft system, um with with red wine, a bit of aperol and uh, rye whiskey. Believe it or not, um, wow, it is so. delicious refreshing uh but substantive it's it's a it's a it's a it's a cocktail that i think you know anybody could drink um if they're looking for something refreshing it certainly does that job but it is in not in no way shy it's it's definitely a a hearty uh sangria that's an asset with um with michael and the team over there they're great yeah yeah i have that debate my wife doesn't really go in for whiskey but it's my favorite drink and there's always there's certain drinks where they can hide the whiskey well enough or complement it well enough that it's palatable to her. And then there are other ones that are just like, nope, way too boozy. I'm not touching this for the 10 foot pole. And so this sangria sounds like something that she, even she'd be interested, you know, a whiskey drink for folks who don't normally pick up a whiskey. In in, in no way um, uh, diminishing the crucial inclusion of the rye whiskey in the drink, it's not there to become a Manhattan. It's not an old fashioned, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's, it's there to, to sort of bring that caramel uh, richness, that woody sort of oaky quality um, that, that a good spicy rye brings to the table. In this case, it's Sagamore rye. Shout out to, to those guys. Those, those are, those guys are like family. Um, so, you know, it's not there to become a, a front and center punch in the gut rye cocktail. It's, it's there to sort of give, give some richness to the, to the drink. And, and I think a, a really, really fun way. Um, and I, and I agree, you know, if you serve that, that sangria to, to your wife, I think she would probably enjoy it very much. So what's next for, for Rockies? Is it all about, you know, getting the word out to everyone and every, everywhere that, you know, this is something they can use. Are you working on other formulations or the next projects? What's, you know, going on in the, in the the life of you as both a mad scientist and as the head of a brand? <laughs> oh, uh, the answer is yes. All, all <laughs> of the above. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, Rockies uh, is going to, in its current iteration, is going to really stand the test of time, at least at least as I see it. I hope so. You know, I, I recently uh, worked with the Stranger and Stranger team to do a beautiful bottling uh, redesign. The bottle that I launched with, um, I think, was functional. It did, it did a decent enough job to bring the product to market, but you know, I'm not a designer. I don't know what I'm doing. So sure. I, I worked with that team. They're incredible. And, and uh, now the bottle is, is um, externally reflective of what's on the inside. Um, and that's incredible. So uh, that was uh, a huge accomplishment that only happened over the last few, few weeks. And I look forward to, to, to making sure the world is aware of that. And beyond, beyond that, I'd like to see it, you know, get into bigger bottles and in smaller bottles so that you know, regardless of what you're trying to accomplish with the spirit, you have a format that makes sense for you. If you're a busy bar and you want a liter of a liter bottle, you should be able to get a liter bottle of it. So that's a goal. Also, if you're in a, in a, in a hotel and you'd like a little bottle of Rockies, one or two drinks with, I'd, I'd like to be able to provide that service also. So uh, those are two goals that are uh, on the near horizon, I hope. I would like to release a uh, spiced version of Rockies that has seen some time in barrel. We did a, a small experiment, uh, only one barrel, at New York Distilling Company where I make Rockies. I'm incredibly proud to, to partner with them uh, to produce Rockies. Uh, they're amazing. They're amazing friends. Uh, they make like uh, Ragtime Rye, Dorothy Parker Gin, yes. um, some really, yeah. really, and others, and really, really cool spirits. So gratitude to them, and, and I'm, I'm honored to work with them. Uh, we aged some Rockies uh, in in one of their barrels, and it's just 
superb. It's delicious. Mm. Uh, one of their spent rye whiskey barrels, and it's delicious. Yeah. I, I want to sort of uh, dig deeper on that and and add some baking spices, things like mace and nutmeg and cinnamon, and and see where it goes. I know the capacity for deliciousness is there. And while Rocky's in its original uh, formulation is wonderful all year long, I contend, I, I think that, you know, the first impression of people when they taste it is that it's so fresh and so light and, and, and uh, sunny. You know, a lot of people talk about it being such a great drink for, for warm weather. And, and I do agree. Uh, again, I think it's great in hot toddies too, and Manhattans too. But, um, but I'd like to see, I'd like to see this aged version uh, come up, come onto market with a bit more undertones of, of winter and fall um, that make sure that, that it's available and it's relevant all year long. Mm-hmm. I, I too, you know, I, I sell Rockies in New York. Uh, that's, that's home for me. Um, and that's, that's, you know, where, where I've spent the last 15 years plus um, uh, building, building a community. So uh, New Jersey next door uh, was, was the next, next stop on, on the expansion train. Um, a, a bunch of friends in California and some in Florida also uh, asked for the product. So um, those those quickly became third and fourth uh, homes for the brand, although I don't get to the West Coast as much as I'd like. And Florida is always gorgeous. But you know, right now, I think or, sort of organic ex- expansion, you know, go where the demand is. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, go where the demand is for sure. And, and also, I, I need to go where I can get to. You know what I'm saying? Like, so uh, Connecticut is is going to happen very soon. Massachusetts happened last year, and working with those uh, those folks out there has been awesome. And now that you know the world is starting to reopen a bit more, um, I plan on spending a lot more time in Massachusetts. Georgia just opened as a market that's super close, relatively speaking, for for me. So trying to trying to sort of uh, organically grow out um, into into the world. Illinois is also um, a market that I'd like to tackle. I, I I do have product there, but I just haven't been to visit the market. And that's what's so important is to actually put feet in the street, right? Colorado, Wisconsin, um, you know, the, the team, the team in Ardent has been amazing in, in, in Wisconsin. So uh, grateful to work with them. Uh, also the friends in Mexico that have been tremendous supporters of the brand. Um, yeah. You know, one of my, one of my former teammates, uh, Mauricio Leon, he, he moved from New York back to Mexico city and, and Monterey now. Uh, where where he is uh, working with a phenomenal wine and spirits um, importer and distributor there, so getting to work with them is great. Um, and places like places like the St. Regis, where where Elo and her team work with Rockies and are doing some incredible stuff. I see them on on Instagram. You know, I see pictures yeah. of, of these drinks. So uh, the bottles popping up all over the place, and and knowing that people are doing good work with it, even if I'm not there, it's it's humbling and inspiring and and a true honor. That's that's a fantastic thing to be a part of, I'm sure. Like you said, very inspiring. So, well, cool. We're gonna end it out with our our lightning uh, lightning end questions here for uh, some some advice and some usable tidbits that we're gonna get for our uh, our our listeners here. Yeah. So these are just quick questions. Just answer them off the cuff. You don't have to think about them too much. Okay. Uh, but what's one flavor you can't live without? Oh, uh, fish sauce. Fish sauce. Okay. Uh, favorite city for food in the world? I mean, New York for sure. But, you know, Mexico City, Rome, uh, Lima, they should be in there too. Good ones. And there, yeah. there are many others. No, no offense to anybody who I left out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm partial to New York as well too, but that's, that's my own bias too. Uh, who inspires you in the spirit-making culinary industry? Oh gosh, there are so many people. I am inspired by people who 
know what their tasks are that contribute to the success of their own businesses and enterprises that keep food on the tables of the people who work with them and slug it out with them every day. You know, I, I give a shout out to, you know, Jill Vose, the dead rabbit. She's at the top of her game and everybody knows her name. But the thing is there are people uh, like my friend Damien who runs Monk McGinn's in uh, downtown Manhattan uh, who, when I, when I went in to go and help, help formulate a few drinks um, for his menu a few months ago, it just impressed me how incredibly knowledgeable he is, how hard he works um, and how happy his, his, uh, his guests are and, and his team uh, is and how tight knit they are. So, um, you know, there's, there's a tendency, I think for our industry to, to, and I think for good reason, it, it should be this way in, in many ways, but like there's a tendency to, to find, you know, people who are at the very edge of, of the wave and to, to sort of glorify them. And I think that's awesome. They deserve it. Uh, but there are so many people that are just really kicking ass and, and working really hard, supporting their teams, thinking about their, their colleagues every day and, and making sure that what they're doing is real, relevant, genuine, and uh, sustainable. Sustainable is, a, I think, a good word for it from, from many ways. And they don't get the, the love they deserve. And I, I think, you know, not listing off, because uh, it would be impossible, but listing off a, a long uh, stream of, of people's names and businesses' names, like to all the unsung heroes, there's a ton of them out there. What's the best dish or drink you've experienced that you weren't involved in making? You know, I'll tell you, I went to the Loyal, a John Frazier restaurant here in New York that my buddy Rob Kruger is doing the beverage program for. And a few, I think almost a year ago, maybe maybe over a year ago at this point, he'd taken over that job, inherited, not by choice, inherited from the previous beverage manager, uh, a few bottles of Rockies, and um, I don't think he really wanted them. <laughs> but uh, I can't, I can't speak for him. But like, I know he didn't order them, and he was just like, "Man, I got to do something with this stuff. It's clogging up my inventory." And he made uh, an espresso martini because, for whatever reason, I think it's awesome. Those are those are sort of coming back into style, and I love it. Um, he made an espresso martini that blew my mind. I would never have expected uh, that build on it. I forget exactly what was in it. It was so good. And consequently, you know, uh, jokes on him. I think he now likes the product. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but he's incredible. And, and really he, he, he uh, did something so innovative that I was completely surprised and impressed by. Uh, what's one book show or piece of media that you'd recommend all our listeners seek out? Okay. Um, I think How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie should be required sure. for anybody, any human being that goes out of their apartment or home and interacts with any other human being should have to read that book. Um, yeah. It absolutely changed my life when I read it. And I I can't, um, can't say enough, not nice things, but I can't say enough uh, things to underscore how, how important that book was for me in, in my own path. Um, Keith Durst, one of my one of my friends and former colleagues, um, he introduced me to it whenever I was going through a really, really dark period in my professional and personal life. And I was really confused and couldn't figure out how to get along with myself or other people. And mm -hmm. I was pushing really hard and working really hard. And I thought I was doing good work, but but I couldn't figure out why I was so unhappy, you know, and why nobody wanted to work with me and nobody wanted to be my friend. Uh, and I had such a hard time keeping friends and colleagues. So, you know, he essentially said, well, maybe you're the problem, you know? Sure. And so like, instead of saying, why are all these people being such jerks or why are all these people being so lazy or why are, what, why, why are all these people doing things to fail me? 
maybe I'm the one who's failing. And, and that uh, stung and he was absolutely right. He gave me the book, um, his copy of it, which I read and it hit me like a ton of bricks and I gave it back to him and I bought my own copy and I read it again. So yeah, and I'm actually due for a reread on it just to make sure I, I keep, yeah. keep myself humble. But um, you know, anybody who interacts with other people, regardless of your industry, read it. It's worth it. Uh, it, it changed my life. Last question. Uh, what's the best piece of advice about cooking, spirit making, that world that you've, you've received that resonates with you? That I've received? Um, you know, I don't think that anybody's ever explicitly said, hey, you know, do this, uh, do this thing. But th- what I've learned and I sort of had, have distilled down, and this has certainly been uh, something that I've, I've developed and been given uh, cumulatively over the course of many years, it's always know what you are trying to achieve at any given time with any task and any purpose. And I know that sounds sort of too simple or, or oversimplified perhaps, or maybe obvious, but it's not. It's absolutely not. You know, there are so many times that I sit down. Last night, uh, I sat down with 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 friends for food and drinks at a restaurant I absolutely love, and I love the team. One of my friends uh, that that had joined is pregnant, and she just sort of announced it to uh, at least our little community and probably to the world. And the 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 issue that that I had was that you know, in the midst of barely saying hello to her as she joined the table, our, the service team, again, who I absolutely adore, was so sort of in their, in their lane and focused on making sure that we got plenty of food and plenty of drinks and understanding mm-hmm. the menu and all these things that we barely got to say hello to this lady and give her hugs and congratulate her. And it was all genuine and it was, it was fine and cool and no issue whatsoever. But there was an element of, of like, we're all sitting there waiting to, to give this, give this lady a hug and tell her congratulations on the pregnancy. We're so happy for her, but we all had to wait for, for this ceremony, which lasted for several minutes uh, to make sure that, to make sure that we were ready to dine there when all that was really important in that moment was to make sure that she felt great and that we were able to sort of get excited for her. So in that moment, it's, and it's, and it's difficult. It's really, really, it's a challenge uh, for everybody every day. But in that moment, you know, evaluate what your, what your purpose is at, at, at a table where people are, are coming together, probably after not seeing each other for a very long time and Mm -hmm. whatever you can do to make that moment the most special for those people. That's just one example. And then on the other side, like, you know, making a drink, like what's the point of these ingredients together? And if, and I've been in this position before where, you know, you, you're going to make a variation on a daiquiri and by the end of it, you're, you're like throwing coconut and pineapple and, you know, <laughs> you know, falernum and whatever. And then the, this, this, the, the quote unquote finished product is like this weird Frankenstein amalgam of like, oh, maybe if we add this, then it'll be better. Oh, wait, let's add a dash of bitters and that'll make it taste good. And, oh, you know what this may be missing is a little bit of sweetness. So let's try throwing in some pineapple. And by the end of it, you, you don't, you've lost sight of what you were actually trying to achieve to sure. begin with. So always knowing what you're, what you're trying to achieve, what your goal is and reminding yourself at every step along the way uh, to ensure that you stay focused and you, you achieve and accomplish that goal. That's great. Great advice. Intention is important. Well, that's, this has been fun for everybody. If you're looking, go to Rockies, right? Is that the best place to, to find a store nearby and to learn a little bit more about your journey? It certainly is. And, and please reach out. We're, we, we have the team. And right now, the team is myself and my colleague, Kanika, um, who, who makes a lot of, of what Rockies is possible mm-hmm. uh, and deserves a shout out. You know, we are, we're, we're a team that has and a brand uh, that has 
great ambitions, but we're still very, very small. Uh, so uh, at this point, at this time, you know, in 2021, I think we got to help each other out in, in the craft world, in the small business world. And if you want to reach out, you want to collaborate, you want to talk about whatever, uh, Dale, Dale Carnegie, food or drinks, um, <laughs> drop us a line. We will respond. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Well, thanks. It was great having you and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Russ. Talk soon. Fire and Barley is part of the Sparrow Creative Network and is produced and hosted by me, Russ Martonis. Our theme music is by the unflappable Nils Delaire. And for today's episode, we'd like to thank Prince for showing the world that it's always better to be a little funky. We'll see you soon.